Lots and lots of sick people tonight. I was stopped counting all the texts I was getting of people saying that they were sick. And so, pray for them. And it's kind of a big deal. Sunday is our Christmas program, and uh, several of those that are not well um, are a part of that as far as well, they play a big role in that. So I'm just asking if you would pray for all of those that are sick, please. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 126, please. Psalm 126, and we're going to read all six of these verses here tonight for our text. Let me find my place there. The Bible says, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that, that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126 is part of, and maybe you've heard me mention these before, but it's part of what we call the Song of Degrees. And starting in Psalm 120, continuing all the way through Psalm 134, these psalms are particular in their focus. And they were the, the psalms or songs of degrees were, were those that were sung by Jewish people, and we would might call them pilgrims, who were traveling to Jerusalem in order to keep the various feast days on their religious calendar. And they would travel in groups. And as they would travel together, uh, they would sing one of these or many of these psalms in worship unto the Lord. That's really the focus of these songs of degrees. And Psalm 126 is the seventh of 15 songs of degrees. And it was special to the children of Israel because it reminded them of the Lord's past work in their life as a nation. And it also reminded them of His promise then to carry on that work into the future. All right, So it was particular in its, in its viewpoint to remind of what the Lord had done, but then also to encourage in the promise of the Lord working in the future. And... That has great application for us today as God's people because it, it reminds us again that we are God's people as well. And what God has done for us in the past, what has He done? Well, if we're saved, He's uh, forgiven us of our sin. He's given us a new relationship. We were enemies of God. Now we're children of God. He saved us. But it also reminds us that God has a plan for our life as His child, to not just bless us, 
but to use us for His glory in the future. And tonight, I want to just quickly consider all of these verses in this psalm. And there's three lessons, three powerful lessons that I want us to glean from these verses tonight. And as we do, I want us to focus on the Lord, number one, amen, and what He has already done for us, and then number two, what He longs to do through us. We're going to see three things. We're going to see the praise, we're going to see the prayer, and then we're going to see the promise in these verses tonight. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I do give the time to you, and Lord, ask that you'd help us with your word here tonight and just challenge and encourage us with it and teach us from it, and Lord, that your word uh, would not return void in our own lives, that it would accomplish the purpose you've intended it for tonight, and I pray that there would be uh, good challenge and encouragement as well to God's people, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Consider, first of all, the praise with me, verses 1 through 3. Now notice this, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. First of all, we find that Again, this is Jewish people who would sing these songs. They would sing it as they travel to Jerusalem. And first of all, we find that they speak of their deliverance here in verse 1. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. They speak of their deliverance. And as the Israelites began this hymn of praise, they did so by remembering the great grace of God in their life to deliver them from their trouble, from their enemy. And they remembered how they had been oppressed. They remembered that they were captive by their enemies and how God in His great power had delivered them. And they praise the Lord and they praise Him for the day that He set them free and brought them home. Now, I think you understand the application that can be made for us here. It ought to be a constant practice for God's people to remember where we were when the Lord found us. Amen? Ephesians 2 tells us we're dead in trespasses, in sins. The Word of God tells us that we're enemies of God. Uh, the Word of God tells us that we are under the wrath and condemnation of God. It's, it should be a constant practice for God's people to remember what our life was before the Lord stepped in and how He delivered us from our lost condition. He set us free from the wrath, the condemnation that abides on those without the Lord, and it's only because of His grace. What is grace? Unmerited, unearned favor. For by grace are you saved through faith. We didn't deserve any of that. And the Lord deserves praise, amen, for setting us free for changing our lives, for altering our destiny. Where would you be tonight if the Lord had not saved your soul? Amen? It's a good thing to think about. It's a good thing to remember. It helps give us some perspective, keeps us balanced. Listen, we don't deserve anything good, but every good thing comes from the Lord. And He deserves our praise for that. They speak of their deliverance, but then they speak of their delight. He says, the, the psalmist says, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter. 
and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Basically, this kind of tells us it's like they could hardly believe it. They were like them that dream. Like, is this really true? And like, somebody pinch me. Am I dreaming this? Are we really free? That's kind of the idea that the psalmist is giving. And they were amazed at what God had done for them. His power and His grace and His love in their life. And they felt like they were people who were living in a dream, like it was too good to be true. But when it finally dawned on them that they were, what they were experiencing was real, it caused them to be filled with joy and to their hearts to be lifted and for their voices to start to praise the Lord. Even some of the heathen, the, the Gentiles around them. Notice that in verse 2. Then said uh, they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. Even among the heathen, some of them around them recognized the work of God in their life and gave, and gave God glory for it. And these saints then in verse 3 simply agree with the assessment. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And so they're filled with praise because the Lord had worked in a mighty way for His glory. And it caused them to simply praise the Lord and exalt the Lord for His grace and His goodness and His blessing. And what a lesson for the children of God. We've been delivered from death. We've been delivered from hell by the grace of God. We're children of the living God. We have reason to rejoice. But beyond that, God walks us through trial in life. God blesses us with physical blessing. He delivers us from deep trial in this life as well. And listen, what I'm simply saying is when we recognize the grace of God walking us through trial of life, the deeper the trial, the louder the praise should be because the grace is greater. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Think about the goodness of God in your life and how, how much we ought to praise Him even more because of His abundant blessing. And oh, that our hearts would be filled with His praise, that we would be quick to proclaim His goodness. The Bible teaches us that praise honors the Lord, and we should be involved in praising Him. Psalm 135.1, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise Him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto His name, for it is pleasant. The Bible tells us that praise honors the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15, By Him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. So at what point should we stop giving thanks unto the Lord? Never a time. Continually. Look at the last part of verse 3. Well, actually, we can just look at verse 3. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. So as these people think about all that they've received from the Lord, they say, whereof we are glad. Now, we, none of us have been in captivity as far as, as, far as I know. Uh, no one's 
been a prisoner of war or no one's been, none of us have been overtaken by another nation and become servants and slaves to them. I think there's a little bit missing from our perspective about the rejoicing that these people would have experienced. That we're really free? That we're really set free? That God worked a miraculous thing? And they say, all of this has caused us to be glad. They make the conscious decision to be happy in the Lord who had set them free, who had redeemed them. And you know what? There's a lot to be distressed about in the world, if you think about that. War, politics, disease, death, sin, evil. You just go on down the line. Sometimes people (laughs) just go on down the line. And all of it can cause our hearts to be in despair. But if we can learn to keep our heart focused on the Lord and what the Lord has done for us, He's done it in the past, amen? He can do it again. What the Lord has done for us, it goes a long way to giving us joy in the midst of trial. The bottom line is this, and here's the, here's the pay attention to this, Okay? If you allow your happiness to depend on the circumstances around you, there's a good chance that you're going to be sad and defeated all the time. If, however, we make God and His graciousness to us and make that our focus, then we can learn to rejoice no matter what is happening around us. That's hard to do because we're sinful, finite beings. But it's a truth. It's a truth that we can learn and we can know and we can experience if we'll obey it, if we'll put it to practice. Look at verse 4. Secondly, the prayer. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. So here, we find that there the first few verses, they're praising the Lord. They're thinking back on what the Lord has done. And then in verse 4, it's a prayer. So we remember what the Lord has done. And then in verse 4, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now that phrase, streams in the south, it's simply referring to what they would call wadis, I guess. But it was if you, the nation of Israel in the north, it was green and it was fertile and lush. In the south, it was dry and it was desert. And what would happen is the streams would all dry up in the times of summer heat and so on. But in the spring or in the rainy season, all of those dried up riverbeds would then become full and overflowing with, with water and with runoff. And what he's talking about here is is he says, turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south, in the time when, when the rainy season happens, and when the time when, when the water is flowing, and all of those dried riverbeds are now overflowing and full of water. And as these pilgrims ponder their past, and as they deliver, deliberate on, on God's deliverance in their life, as I was, I was trying to figure out what, what does that mean? Is he talking about just God blessing them with more blessing? And as I studied this out and I looked at what, what uh, some Old Testament Bible scholars 
uh, talk about and say about the, the general consensus about this was that what they were actually praying for was for God to rescue and deliver other people as well. In other words, all the blessing that we've received, the deliverance of God that we've received, Lord, do it again, but do it for our brethren. And overflow it and fill it and our deliverance that we've had. Let, let them be like the streams of the south where they're just overflowing with, with, with those that you have delivered and set free. So they lift up their voices in prayer to the Lord and they pray that just as the spring rains fill those southern streams with floods of water, that God would also deliver others from their captivity and restore them as well. In other words, they prayed that God would finish and complete His work of deliverance in full, in fullness. They had a burden to see others delivered as they had been themselves. And they call on the Lord that He would do it again and set others free as well. And what a great application for this. Great application is here for God's people. You've been saved from your sin. You've been delivered and your soul has been set free. Should you not also carry a burden for those that are still lost in their sin? And pray that God would bring deliverance to them as well. And we need to pray for the Lord of the harvest, not just to send forth labors into the harvest, but that there would be a harvest. We need to pray that God would show men their condition to point them to Jesus Christ so that they too might be saved. That is a prayer that God's people ought to have. There's a story of a man named Tom who was a Christian. And one day Tom was at work and Tom's co-worker came to him and he said, Tom, you're the sort of Christian I like. Tom thought about that for a second and he didn't quite know what to make of that. And Tom thought, well, I mean, I'm a member of a good church. I'm in good standing with my church and so on. And these were all thoughts that were going through Tom's head. But then his co-worker piped up again and he says, you're the sort of Christian that I like because you never seem to bother yourself about a fellow's soul. Those words were lightly spoken, but those words were like an arrow piercing Tom's heart. And if we had listened at Tom's bedroom door that night, we would have heard him saying this, Oh God, forgive me that I seemed so indifferent to the welfare of my friends. Help me to trouble myself more and more about them. Give me a passion for souls. And I use that illustration to say this. Maybe more of us need times of prayer just like that. Lord, give me a passion for souls. Lord, forgive me for being so self-centered and not concerned about the soul or the welfare of my fellow man. And may God create a burden within our heart for the lost that drives us to Him for them, but then in turn drives us to them for Him. Does that make sense? Praying for their soul, 
but then in turn drives me to them to try to win them for Him. And so we see the prayer of these people for their brethren. And then I want you to notice verses 5 and 6, the promise. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. When you get to this part of the psalm, there seems to be a a total change in the direction of this psalm. In fact, we see quite a contrast in it from the first part of it and the first verses to the end. In the first part of the psalm, there was singing, there was joy at the deliverance of the Lord. Their heart was full. But when you get to the end, it goes to tears and weeping in the last part. There was miraculous deliverance of God in the first part. Things that they didn't do, God did for them. But now, what you find in the last two verses is that someone needs to go to work and someone needs to labor. Notice that? In the first part, the Lord was the one who turned their captivity. It caused them to be full of singing and joy. In the end, here we find they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. See the two contrasts here. But we have to keep in mind here the context. What is this about seed? What is this about sowing? What is this about bearing the precious seed and and bringing in a, a harvest? What is this all about? What does it have to do with all of this? Well, God had delivered them from their captivity. They weren't in their homeland. But when these people returned, they found that the land was decimated. They found that it was totally destroyed. The fields would have been fallow. There was no harvest. There was little food to eat. And all they, had would have, all they would have had in that time would have been a few precious seeds that held the promise of a future harvest. And taking those few seeds, they would have to involve themselves in the backbreaking work of sowing those fields. And they would take those seeds and with tears they would sow those seeds into the earth and with faith and with patience they would have to wait and in time there would be life in those fields. When that harvest time would come, those few seeds had been transformed into a great harvest. And this time, when the workers would return from the field, it wouldn't be with tears as they went out and sowed before, but this time with great rejoicing, carrying those sheaves in their arms. And I think it speaks volumes for the saint of God after we've been delivered from our sin, after we've been saved by God's grace, we should be moved by a burden to see others have what God has given to us. And and the idea is this, and we might say it this way, we've been delivered so that we might serve. We're to take what we have, the gospel message, the seed, the word of God, and go into a lost world and sow it for the glory of God, trusting that God will take those few seeds and turn them into a harvest for His glory. And I want to just take a couple minutes as we finish up here to look at these last two verses and what they have to teach us about this matter of sowing the gospel. 
In verse 6, first of all, you see the task of the sower. He that goeth forth. He that goeth forth. The sower is to go forth and sow that seed. The verb form there is in the present tense, and it speaks of continual, consistent going and sowing. You know, when Jesus gave His apostles, His men, the Great Commission, He said to them in Matthew 28 and verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That word go or go ye has the idea of as you go. In other words, whether you're called into full-time ministry or whether you're just going through life day by day, your focus should still be on giving the gospel. As you go, give the gospel. When the Bible says here that they were bearing precious seed in verse 6, that little phrase has the idea of leaving a trail of seeds behind you. Think of it. It has the idea of leaving a trail of seeds behind you. And the idea here is that everywhere you go, as you walk through life, we're to be dropping the seeds of the gospel. That's your life. And the question is, are you sowing as you go? We're trying to, as a church, what about your part as an individual? Are you leaving seeds of the gospel wherever you go? May the Lord help us to do that. Amen? Amen. Notice the tears of the sower. So see the task, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. Here's the tears of the sower. Notice that these, as they go out to sow, they're shedding tears. Why do they weep? What are the tears for? The tears are for the fact that they know that everything depends on this next crop. We're putting these seeds into the ground. And our life and our future depends on this next crop and their burden for the harvest to come. And they want to see that seed multiplied so that people will live. You know what the Bible clearly indicates to us? That many more people are going to die lost in their sin than ever will be saved. There's a Broadway, and many go therein. And there's a narrow way, and few there be that find it. The Bible is also clear that there's only two places. That's either heaven or hell. And I would submit to you tonight that if we really believed, if we really, really believed in an eternal hell, or the condemned will spend eternity burning in the lake of fire away from the presence of God, no hope, no relief, no release, I wonder if we would be more active in spreading the good news of the gospel everywhere we go. But then notice, lastly, the triumph of the sower. In verse 6, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The sower went out into the fields. He worked. He sowed. He labored. Now he returns with rejoicing, bearing in his arms the fruits of his labors. There's a great harvest to show for his investment 
and his tears. Now notice the Bible says doubtless. Doubtless he's going to come again with rejoicing. Why doubtless? Well, because it's the law of sowing and reaping. It's the law of sowing and reaping. What you sow is going to come back. And besides that, Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The law of sowing and reaping, what you sow is going to come back. Not only that, we also reap in proportion to what we sow. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, if, if we sow sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we're going to reap bountifully. Either way, there's still a reaping that's going to happen. But we reap in proportion to what we sow. And the truth is, and the point is, if we will go and we will sow those seeds, God will give the increase. 1 Corinthians 3.6, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You know, we won't see everybody that we witness to saved. Surely not. But God will save some for His glory. There will be souls in heaven because we were obedient. God's Word is not going to return void. I think sometimes people get discouraged because they don't see the tangible physical results. That's not our job. Our job is to sow. Our job is to labor in the sowing of the seed. And the Lord is the one who will give the harvest. If our focus is on some sort of tangible physical return, like I'm expecting this, you know, of my own imagination, that's the part of the problem. It's our own imagining. What about God? What about His work? Yeah, we'll probably be disappointed. But we're not going to be disappointed if we are simply obedient and we trust that what we sow, we're going to reap. And I'm simply encouraging you. You may not see everybody saved that you witness to or seeds that you plant the gospel in, but God is going to save some for His glory. And we leave that to Him. And so I'm, I'm speaking to you tonight as a group of people who've been saved, And because you've been saved, you've been given much. Amen? But the Bible says, to whom much is given, much shall be required. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And so as I close here tonight, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Number one, remember where you were when the Lord found you, what He did for you when He saved you. Amen? Praise Him for it. Number two, seek the Lord for the kind of burden that you need for the souls of men. We get so caught up in regular living, daily life, that people walk around us all the time and we don't give a thought to their soul. May the Lord soften our hearts again. Open our eyes to the multitudes. And then thirdly, make a decision tonight that by the help of the Lord, you're going to leave this place and you're going to go out into the fields and you're going to sow that gospel seed. It's a great time to start. Christmas season is here. People think of Jesus. It's a great time to start sowing the seeds of the gospel. You You need to have it in your heart. Lord, help me. Help me to be and to do what you've called me to do. As a born-again believer... 
My responsibility is to preach the gospel. Leave, leave a trail everywhere you go. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd encourage our hearts with this truth. And, and Father, I pray that you'd help us to be the kind of seed sowers that we ought to be for your glory. It doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. Only what matters is what you think. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be motivated in pleasing you, being obedient to you. We love you tonight. Thank you for your great grace in our life, for setting us free. Father, thank you for your miraculous work of salvation in the heart of a sinful man. Father, thank you for the blessings that you provide, the spiritual, the physical. Lord, the grace to walk through trial. Lord, we thank you for all of those things and we want to praise you for it. But in turn, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize that you've saved us to serve, to bring forth good works and fruit. And Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts again over the need of people around us who are bound for eternity, that we not just walk through life unaware and unconcerned. And Lord, I pray that you'd remind us again of the great need of souls and Lord, that we be those who would sow the seeds of the gospel and then trust you to bring in the harvest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.